Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, June 11th, 2015, the Surveillance and Turkey edition, which sounds like the basis of a pretty grim Christmas joke. <laughs> uh, I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham, joined as always by my usual co-hosts, Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello, Kristala. Hello, Adam. Hello, Scott. And by Scott Lucas, who has just been preemptively introduced by Kristala, who's a professor of international politics and editor of EA Worldview. Hello, yeah. Scott. How are you doing? I'm surviving. A very good morning to everybody. Aren't we all? And sunny it is. It is. As is our favoured paradigm, we'll be covering a couple of major topics this week. First, after the United States Congress makes more of a kerfuffle than would until recently have been expected about the extension of communications tapping powers for the security services, we'll be reflecting on how meaningful that all was and the legacy of Edward Snowden and his leaks. Second, as the governing party of Turkey, presided over by Recep Tayyip Erdogan, are you all proud of me, uh, is dealt a setback at the polls in a national parliamentary election, we'll take stock of the state of democracy, liberalism, and the balance between religion and state, etc. in Turkey and its implications for the nation and its neighbourhood. Onward. <laughs> Let's kick off. In 2013, Edward Snowden, a Hawaii-based employee of a national security agency contractor, went off-grid and turned whistleblower, leaking via liberal British and American journalists proof that the American security services had been harvesting on a blanket basis both telephone metadata and internet records passing through US-based servers belonging to both foreigners and US citizens. Since those revelations, a greater public awareness and debate has broken out in the US and globally regarding such surveillance, and in the last month, surveillance authority has been reauthorized by the U.S. Congress only with greater judicial oversight and restriction than had heretofore been the case. So, whither the balance between privacy and security in 2015? And is all of this just trivia as far as we non-Americans are concerned, since everyone seems to be fine with unlimited intrusion into the privacy of whoever the NSA takes a shine to, so long as they aren't American? <laughs> Uh, okay, to kick us off there, Scott, has Edward Snowden, still a resident of Moscow, and uh, not entirely willingly at the moment, uh, uh, as far as I understand it, been vindicated by, uh, by, by these recent events in the U.S. Congress? Well, he's still a bastard. If you listen to the public line of U.S. and British politicians, officials, intelligence services, but I had an interesting chat with a... CIA analyst last week, as you do, <laughs> and he basically said that people within the agency were looking at this bulk collection of data, just sweeping up everything off of emails, off of telephone communications, off of other electronic communications, and really having serious questions about it, that in effect, there was no legitimacy for what they were doing. They felt exposed by this. And also, I think he said quite rightly, and this has been missed in the debate, they're questioning the effectiveness of it, that you basically were in a needle in a haystack approach where you just hoovered up everything and then hoped you'd find a magic answer to a supposed threat. Yeah, because the, the, pre the previous system under the, the, the authorizations that had been assumed under the Patriot Act, which have since been questioned by the courts, was that effectively the security services would apply to the phone company uh, and ask them for all of their metadata about every communication anyone had made in the, uh, uh, the whole period in question. Sure. That would then be handed over to the security services, and by their account, they would mine it only for uh, instances of communication involving people they regarded were a legitimate threat. The new version 
uh, is supposed to be that rather than having it all and then going into it when they want, uh, they will instead have to identify which individuals' records by, by number or name uh, they think that they need, and then that will be delivered by the phone company rather than the whole thing. Which logically makes sense as a practical system that instead of walking into, if you can imagine a room full of like pieces of paper and scraps of paper, and you want to find the one piece of paper that gives you a clue to, I don't know, something that's happening in terms of a domestic threat or a Middle Eastern situation, as opposed to that, you walk in, you have a basically 10 sheets of paper, each of which have clues in it, and you say, we want to find out more from those 10 sheets. Now, that system was the one that was developed since the 1970s in America, where you had to apply to a very secret court to ask for the right to tap into private this communications. This is the so-called FISA court. This is the so-called FISA court. And then this is the one, and I think this is where you need to get to before you say, oh, Edward Snowden, bastard or not. This is the system that was ripped apart just after 9-11 in 2001 by the Bush administration, which pushed the FISA court to the side and without any legal authority, went on this spree of saying, we can collect information anywhere and everywhere. And that's what Snowden exposed. There is a red herring which is flying about, which is, oh, Edward Snowden has, has exposed these, you know, these really secret operations. He's, he's either exposed them in public through his evil cohorts, like journalist Glenn Green, Greenwald, the Guardian newspaper, or alternatively, uh, he's exposed them to the, the, the Russians who are holding him in Moscow. Yeah, because, because the Espionage Act is what the American government, if they were able to get hold of him, say they would charge him under right now, right? So the implication of uh, that is that he was in some way in league with, with, with foreign powers. That, that's what, yeah, exactly. That's the, and so that's the whole screen that's been put up. In fact, you know, and it's like there has not been a case yet of where Snowden caused harm to either American or British security with what he revealed. The fact is, is that the security services never like being exposed. They do never like being exposed in terms of their operations. And they, they don't want uh, dirty laundry out in public. And they don't want limits debated on them publicly. But privately, to come back to my CIA analyst. Like I asked him, I said, look, would we have had the changes where the Patriot Act, the 2001 Patriot Act that authorized bulk collection, would we have had that replaced by the Freedom Act, which makes some changes, not as much as people think, but some changes. Would we have had that? without Snowden. And he said, well, Snowden sped the process up. And I think that's a useful starting that's point. That's as close to a yes as you're getting, I think, in that, uh, in that dialogue. I was pretty happy with that, yeah. 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 And, and like I said, you're never going to get the, the CIA analyst going on record with his public name because his superiors are going to be saying, oh, Snowden is terrible. But I think what he is reflecting is, is the practical view here for both legal considerations and just the process of collecting intelligence that the system since 2001 was a chaotic system that was not good on many fronts. And Snowden basically is a scapegoat. The, the Freedom Act has made a couple of smaller changes, though, right? So it's not the grand thing that perhaps has been portrayed in some parts of the media. But we're talking about two significant changes. One is that they have to request that particular information with the specific the specifics of the individual, and two is that there's some kind of protection, so there's a there's a representative in the court that can argue against the sharing of that information. Yeah, that I, I think that's about the size of it. That previously they just took everything, and then we more or yeah. less took it that their internal regulations or restraints yeah. stopped them going through it. Yeah. And then secondly, this FISA court, the notional oversight mechanism through which they have to show some good reason why yeah. they want this stuff, was just this complete rubber stamp in which I think it's rejected 
Uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say single figures uh, or, or, or things that have ever been asked of it during the course of this whole war on terror period. So the idea that it is just a, a rubber stamp for the security services requests has mm. not inaccurately taken hold. I guess that representative of, uh, of, of the counter-arguments is supposed to make that process a little more robust. So they have to at least Nominally. present a prima facie a reason yeah. why whatever they're asking yeah. for specifically, uh, and they do have to be more specific now, is necessary to yeah. Isn't PRISM the bigger thing here? Isn't PRISM the more important thing in this discussion? PRISM would be... Uh, the the prism prism Adam save me here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this well this is the uh, the distinction that I think has been lost a little bit in the course of some of the discussion of this reauthorization. Uh, Fred Kaplan wrote an article on Slate that, that that discussed this in some some detail. The thing that has been the focus of our attention in this most recent reauthorization debate has been the collection of telephone metadata, mm. which is to say who's been calling who, who sent messages to who, uh, and from that you can apparently uh, make great mileage in terms of mapping out uh, people's patterns, and then file for a warrant to get the specific information as to the content of those communications if you decide that you need it. PRISM was the thing that was also revealed by Edward Snowden, which is the comprehensive internet uh, communications uh, uh, dragnet, effectively, that was put in place by the US security services. So whatever you're doing in, in internet chat, in email, all of that stuff was so basically being open-doored to the NSA uh, via this surveillance program, based on the logic that even international communications that went through American servers were readily available for tapping yeah. uh, without the need to, to, to hack or leave American territory. Yeah. So all of your private communications as citizens are also open. So the content of, of private communications are also open. Yeah, I think, yes. there, I think there's two points possibly to make here to put the, the surveillance and prism uh, within the context of the recent changes of the Freedom Act. The first is, is that what I think the intelligence services want to protect is their ability to get metadata. Mm. So they want to be able to get the locations of people who are communicating, the identities of people with whom they are communicating. And I think, at least in the U.S. case, the British case is interesting, it's different. In the U.S. case, I think the intelligence services are almost willing to give up the bulk collection if they have this protection, they, they can still get the metadata. But the second is, is that beyond so the real challenge to the intelligence services has been that the new tech companies are basically running faster than they do. There's a really interesting story in that all Apple phones now have end-to-end -end encryption, that Google is now putting in place end-to-end -end encryption, which means that even if the intelligence services could tap into the bulk data, they don't have the key to unlock the code to be able to read it. And that, I think, is really worried the intelligence services. By the way, Google did this in part as payback because the NSA was spying on Google. Mm. Mm. Now, the intelligence services have got to find some way of dealing with this internet world mm. beyond a program like Prison says we're just going to grab everything. Yeah. Because not only do they have to deal with internet encryption, they've got to deal with the fact that very savvy internet users are going to be using programs like Tor or are going to be using proxy servers that basically mean they're 
it's much more difficult, not impossible, but much more difficult to intercept what they're doing. Although, to be fair, I've always assumed that you could do nothing that would more securely get you onto a surveillance list for the NSA than download Tor software, to be honest. It's, I imagine that serves as like the biggest red flag there is. <laughs> the, the, I wouldn't exactly drive stuff to your computer and tap Tor into Google right now, right? Uh, if you are already using Tor, if that makes sense. What, but the thing is, is that so many people are now using Tor, or variants yeah. of Tor, that it's, it's not possible to... To get them, I mean, it's and there is a, a an idea out there, and I'm not sure it's going to happen. But there's some very good computer scientists who think that you may see Apple or you may see Google try to grab Tor and put Tor on as a feature of what they are providing to their users. That's mm. very interesting. Within the next decade, and and so I think that's why I say Snowden a scapegoat. I mean, Snowden is basically a scapegoat because there are much bigger actors in play here. Mm that are going to affect what will be done with surveillance in the next decade. Let me ask the question from the audience's perspective. Why do we need to care about this? Why is this important to us sitting here in the UK right now today? Well, this is, well, this is an interesting one, uh, I guess, uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because when we hear about these debates taking place in the United States as non-US citizens, I get the impression we easily segue into believing that when they talk about restrictions on who they can surveil and what they can surveil, we, th we think they're talking about us. Uh, we believe that we would in some way be protected by this. Of course, that's not true at all. Within the United States Security Services and within the public debate, it is taken as read that if you're non-American and not in America, it's completely fine for them to hoover up all of it and do what they like with it because that's international espionage. It's exclusively really an argument about what they're allowed to do uh, within American territory, where hitherto there's been a, a, a much more intense debate about the, the boundaries of intelligence services activity. So I guess in terms of how it affects us, um, I worry that it affects us less than we think it does because we're still um, um, completely vulnerable to, to everything that they feel like doing and entirely dependent on their restraint or its total lack. But with regard to the um, to to, the, the, to even the American population situation, I think maybe what you're what you're getting at is that the public, even now, post Snowden, with this debate um, having happened in a way that I think we can probably safely assume it never would have if he hadn't made the leaks that he had. Is this surveillance stuff like drone strikes in that category of thing where uh, uh, an elite of uh, conscious and uh, detail-aware individuals with liberal sensibilities are terribly troubled by it and terribly upset about it, but the public basically gives it the internet shruggy guy uh, as, as, as a response that this is uh, something they're doing, serious people are doing it to address a serious threat. Exactly. I've got nothing to hide and nothing to fear, yeah. so what do I care about this? And therefore, for all of the heat that is generated by uh, the liberal elite worrying about its privacy, the average citizen just doesn't care as much as we think they ought to care. And I think for that to be countered, uh, my feeling is that we need a for instance uh, to come to light of the abuse of this government access. Because at the moment, the potential for abuse is so clear and so visible that they have all of this data. They could potentially look into anyone they want for any reason to do with national security legitimately or not. And we assume, therefore, that if the, the wrong eggs uh, got their minds to it, this could go wrong. We haven't yet had that case come to light of that happening, of someone who is not 
at all a security threat, having their life damaged in some clear way by unjustified surveillance being used against them. And when that happens, it could be the equivalent of the Millie Dowler phone hacking moment, where a long known about phenomenon becomes much more controversial because it becomes clear a specific wrong has been done that is not at all justified. So did you guys see the last week tonight interview with, with Edward Snowden? Uh, it was an exclusive probably about a month ago. This was John Oliver. Yeah, the yeah. John Oliver interview. Uh, John Oliver forced Edward Snowden to reduce it down to dick pics, right? <laughs> and what he did was say, how, so he kept asking, he kept interrogating, how does this matter to us? How does this matter to the common mm. American? And essentially, and then he went and interviewed kind of people on the street about well, do you do you know what Prism is, or do you know what 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 the what NSA is doing with your surveillance? And the answer is exactly what you're pointing to, Adam. I don't care. There is some threat out there. They're probably doing the right thing. When it comes down to it, um, Oliver says, and Snowden says, the NSA can see pictures that you send to your whoever you feel like. Whoever you send your <laughs> whoever you to. Send your We're not judging to, you. Yeah. Uh, NSA sees that, shares that, can share that, that passes around intelligence mm. communities, and that's been exposed, yeah. right? So that image of a computer with a phalanx of security operatives around it, pointing laughing and laughing at pictures, at pictures of, of your, your genitals. Right, yeah. so, and do you care about not this? Cool not cool security services, not cool. American public says, not cool security services, not cool. And there, and there you have a response. And essentially what John Oliver was trying to do was say... Mm take this very high-end intellectual, doesn't liberal, doesn't appeal to us, we don't care about it aspect, and show me how it matters to the everyday life of, of the citizen. There are two fundamental principles here, and if you in the U.S. or in Britain want to hold yourself up to the rest of the world, as both countries claim to do, you have to respect them. One is a right to privacy. The second is due process of law. Or to move from dick pics to something maybe slightly more exalted. If a man whispers something to his wife or if a woman whispers something to her husband, do the surveillance services have a right to be sitting there behind them to pick up on that? Whenever they would probably say no. But if it's on the internet or on a phone, then supposedly they have access? No, I mean, privacy doesn't stop there. Let's go to our... Uh, numbers of the week section uh, in which we each bring uh, a number that represents something we think is interesting or worth talking about that has happened during the course of the last seven days. Cristalo, what have you brought us? I knew you'd look to me first and I don't. You know, I'm not the kid that wants to go first in school. I'm just not. But I'll take this moment to be forced to go first. So I noticed The Guardian the other night, uh, last night in fact, at about midnight, that's what they call preparation <laughs> <in this> <laughs> Told you I'm not the kid that likes to go first. Ran an article saying schools monitoring pupils' web use with anti-radicalization software. So, the, under the Counterterrorism and Security Act 2015, which comes into play on the 1st of July, there's a requirement that schools have due regard to the need to prevent pupils from being drawn into terrorism, right? So, these software companies, being software companies, have, have piloted some um, programs 
that pick up keywords. So things like Jihadi Bride, for example, or Jihad or G. It's there's one of my favorite websites. <laughs> jihad, Jihad lobbyist. There's a term for it. Uh, Jihobbyist, I think, <laughs> and uh, just and uh, Message to America, which of course is that website that 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 runs pretty um, violent beheadings. Then for good measure, they've also thrown in uh, a reference in their keywords to Stormfront, which is, of course, the, the white supremacist neo-Nazi organisation, just not to be... Not the Billy Joel song. No, no. But maybe with links. So... Well, they play at all their meetings to get them riled up. So anyway, this is going to be... There's, there's, a, there's a company called Impero that, um, that is rolling this out in London, Durham, Essex, Leicestershire, Warwickshire, Yorkshire... Staffordshire. All the hotspots. Yep. <laughs> and in addition to this, where they say it's not about criminalising children, there are also some of the schools are running workshops with uh, parents to help them identify potential radicalisation of their children up to and including the ages of four. Well, what is the worst that could happen with this invasion? <laughs> That's all I can ask. It sounds both very reasonable to me. Well, if, if Cristala's number is four, then mine is... 12.5, as in... Well, we never discussed decimals, Scott. <laughs> I, feel, I, feel, I feel like you're taking liberties already. It's only the first time we've done this. I'm a precise man. 12.5, as in the 12-and-a-half-year prison sentence handed out to an Iranian artist and cartoonist, Atena Fagadani, last week by a revolutionary court. Now, what was the crime that merited such a lengthy sentence? Uh... She had dared to draw a cartoon which depicted Iranian members of parliaments as animals. Uh, I'm not quite sure what type of animals we're talking about, whether it's fuzzy chipmunks, lovable gerbils, ponderous donkeys, <laughs> dangerous dogs, or whatever the animals were. This is starting to sound like an awesome cartoon series <laughs> that you're pitching me right here. Either an awesome series or to pick up on someone who dealt with animals and whose work was made into a cartoon. Mr. George Orwell, who talked about what could happen when a state cracked down not only on its criminals and carried out surveillance, not only on its terrorist threats... Or children. Or children, but also cracked down on its artists, its writers, its journalists. So Ms. Fargadani's case, I raise her number of 12.5 because there are more than 30 Iranian journalists who are serving long prison sentences right now. Mm. Four legs, uh, bad, 12.5 years, good, <laughs> as far as they're concerned. Okay, my number of the week uh, is 31, which is the number of days that it took between David Cameron managing to win a majority in government and the first in-public uh, stone-flinging row between him and his fellow MPs about Europe, uh, which just filled me with... Such, well, on the one hand, it was great because it made me feel young again, because I grew up in the 1990s, the time in which watching the Conservative Party self-immolate, if there's any other kind of immolation, I don't know, uh, uh, on the subject of Europe became sort of a national pastime, where they won this election with a narrow majority, and everyone saw it as a great mandate, and then the next seven years were this baton death march of intramural fighting, um, so I got that nostalgia, but also that weary sense of what's to come, that we're... 
we're no sooner finished with the election and all of the shock and uh, uh, the, the surge of at least motivation for the future in either support or opposition of the government that comes in the immediate aftermath when it's revealed that we're just going to be having deja vu all over again in some format, but actually worse this time because the consequences could be so much more serious that there's going to be this referendum on British membership of the EU, uh, which could go either way, frankly. But even aside from the importance of that, we are clearly set for just week after week, month after month of position taking and knife fighting and uh, uh, just all of the unpleasantness of my adolescence uh, relived via the Tory party once Hopefully again in public. Hopefully not all of the unpleasantness. I associate them with every part of it, Cristala. <laughs> it's good of you to try and talk on their behalf, but I feel there's no escape from my reliving the whole thing like a flashback and seeing John Major's face uh, throughout every moment of it. On so, David Cameron's body. Yes, uh, much in the style of an Iranian cartoon uh, animal mashup. The Conservative Party is now realigning in the patterns of my youth only worse. Elections on June 7th delivered a less than entirely expected setback to the ambitions of Turkey's ruling moderate, or are they still, Islamist Justice and Peace Party, otherwise known as AK. I'm sure there's an AKA joke in there somewhere, but I haven't managed to craft it yet. Uh, denying it an overall majority in Parliament, though it remains by far the largest single party. It also handed an unprecedented share of electoral success to the Kurdish minority-led HDP party, which reached out beyond its ethnic base with a progressive platform, making calls with feminists, LGBT voters, and others discomforted by the religious and authoritarian tendencies of the AK, and clearing the threshold for representation in Parliament as a united party for the first time under the present constitution. The election had been expected to provide a mandate for constitutional reform and consolidation of power under the president and AK leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who has led the country in various offices since 2002, but he's been viewed in recent years as an increasingly intolerant and incipiently perhaps even dictatorial leader. Does this result portend good or ill for this rather important country, uh, which, many, which many would say embodies the bridge between Western and Muslim political worlds? Kristala, are you feeling good about Turkey right now? If you were in Turkey, would you be feeling good about Turkey right now? Uh, take this election result apart for us and put it in simple terms of, uh, uh, of good and bad for me. I think this election, I'm feeling good about Turkey's election, general election. And if I were in Turkey, I would be feeling pretty good about the election result as well. Uh, why is this important? Why do we need to care about this issue? Um, there are three reasons, I think. One is for the very obvious one that it's blocked the AKP's attempts to uh, change Turkey's constitution and primarily enhance the role of the president because that was one of the things, the major things that Erdogan was going for. So, uh, good, no despotic president ruling for life. Two. We frown on those in the, uh, in the political world <laughs> we like podcast. Them. We yeah. like them to have the semblance of elections, at least. Yeah. Um, controversial context. So, Demirtas's um, HDP party, the, the, the formerly Kurdish uh, party, or the primarily Kurdish party, kind of, to me, signals a change of approach for them. So... 
And and for this election, they changed tactic as well. So they no longer ran as independents, which and they ran as a party, which meant that they had a better chance of uh, well, they have now uh, gone over that ten percent threshold. Because yeah, because Turkey has this crazy high threshold yeah. in Parliament at all, right? You need ten, which must be must be the highest in the world. Which surely. means I don't know that it's the highest in the world, but it, but it's up there, and it's um. And what it means is that you only get the big kind of and generally quite conservative parties. Um, but what they've done, as you said, is open it up, open their party up to a, as a platform for a number of other um, interest groups. And what they do, what sits underneath that is that they harnessed a really very real growing discontent among a large portion of the Turkish population um that's really unhappy with the way that the AK Party has steamrolled general kind of Turkish citizens, um, young people, people that relate to the um, Gezi Park movement, women who have been told that they shouldn't be smiling too much in public, for example. I hate that. Don't, don't you hate that? I'm glad someone's finally taking steps to crack down on and that. And he uh, did, and he tried. And these kind of overtures to, to a much more conservative religious state, and you really did feel that trend in Turkey. Uh, so this is so this this is important, I think, because it offers a potential for a platform in a more organised way that a lot of those disgruntled voters and citizens didn't seem to have prior to this point. So I have hope that uh, that the HDP parties efforts and and lobbying isn't a cynical ploy to uh, to gain votes but instead can be harnessed as a kind of open platform for change. What's going to be interesting is how this turns out. So I think they're a party to watch. I think if they manage to stay as an all-embracing political party and they don't go back to representing only the Kurdish voice, then there's real potential for change in Turkey in a country that is in the Middle East and North African region, a big player in NATO, a player, uh, has real implications for Syria. Um, for the Kurdish issue. So there's a question around, how, well, what happens now to the Kurdish issue? Um, because the AK Party has, has historically made some efforts, some pretty important efforts to kind of appease um, the, the, the PKK as well. There's a question around what will happen with uh, many years imprisoned PKK leader Abdullah Jalan. Um, and of course, his niece was elected to parliament as one of the kind of historic group of people who were elected. So we have his niece being elected. We have uh, the highest number of women being elected in the, t in, the in the general elections. They we had a female quota in their, uh, their candidate list, right? The yes, they did. Yep. Um, we also had ethnic minorities, including the Yazidi community, the Roma community, for Christians. Um, and some Armenians. So it's an interesting reflection of a changing Turkey. And what I think we, we haven't seen to date is a real reflection of, of, of those multiple voices in power in Turkey. So that's what it opens up for me. I'm torn. I'm torn between you know, the hope for activism. So siding with Kristalla. And, and, and basically my position is politi you know, political worldviews in-house cynic. Um, 
I think it's right that the takeaway is that this election checked the drive of a party, AKP, and especially one man, Erdogan, to accumulate power in the presidency to almost, in a sense, uh, use democracy to move towards what could have been an authoritarian rule. Yeah, because the suggestion was he had been the prime minister before, yeah. he'd hit his term limits with that, he's now in the presidency, and he wanted to change the constitution to bring the power with him effectively, right? right. He did what I hope will be enshrined as our contribution to political language around the world. He pulled a Putin, which is to move from the prime minister's position to president, you know, in a, you know, and just to stay in one of the two for as long as he could get away with it. Yeah, he brought his ball with him. Well, exactly. Uh, now, having said that, and having, I, I think there are a series of challenges that are there to work on the hope that Cristal has expressed, which is opening up a political space for debate of issues, women's rights issues, uh, uh, LGBT rights issues, environmental issues, uh, freedom of the press, which has become a big issue in Turkey. I think the first is, is that, all right, if the Constitution is checked, you have to recognize that it was bound up with some very, very important questions. So it was the Constitution, which in part was supposed to be used to resolve the Kurdish issue, yep. which, of course, has been a hot-button issue for years, one in which not only nonviolent confrontation, but very violent confrontation taking thousands of lives. Now, those negotiations are still in process between the government and uh, Kurdish parties, uh, not, not only including the HDP, the mm -hmm. political party, but with Ocalan, mm -hmm. uh, who had been leader of the Kurdish separatist movement, the PKK. Do those negotiations continue? What role does the HDP take in those negotiations? Can we advance to something which provides for a lasting autonomy, for protection of rights, for Kurdish full participation in Turkish politics without fear of discrimination? Can we do that outside a new constitution? Mm -hmm. That's the first question. Second question is, is that the new constitution on the surface, of course, at least, was meant to address issues such as rights that HDP has raised, the issues of religious rights versus secular rights. Now, those questions will now have to move to a different political arena, or it looks like they'll have to move to a different political arena. But even before we get to that, even before we get to that question of the Kurds and rights, we've got an immediate problem, and then I think a very, very big problem beyond this. The immediate issue is that Erdogan, if he wants to today, could get his majority in parliament simply by linking up with one of the two other parties we haven't mentioned. Um, there is the opposition, CHP, the Republican mm -hmm. Party, but there's also the MHP, mm -hmm. the Nationalist Party, who got 17% of the vote. Now, the Nationalists are very right-wing, mm -hmm. so the possibility of a coalition between Erdogan and the MHP takes all of our hopes and mm -hmm. recasts them. But let's assume that that doesn't happen. Let's assume that we have early elections or that we have a minority government for a while. I still think you have a big issue beyond the elections, and that is it is not just a question of Erdogan. It's not just a question of the AKP. You have had Turkish institutions, which have been entrenched even since the return from military rule to supposedly civilian rule, that are quite powerful. The security services, including the intelligence services, have been able to uh, detain the largest number of journalists in the world mm -hmm. per capita mm -hmm. in the past two years. That has gotten worse rather than better after the Gezi Park protest of 2013 because of the threat mm -hmm. to Erdogan. We have YouTube, other social media outlets blocked in Turkey. 
uh, almost at a whim by Erdogan. When the courts try to challenge these government decisions, Erdogan simply goes to a more favorable court and pushes judges aside. We even have prosecutors and judges who have been put in prison because they tried to bring a court case about Turkish arms deliveries to Syrian rebels. That's happened in the last few months. Erdogan doesn't just campaign to say, I should be president. He has campaigned while having the secret state against supposedly the deep, dark threat mm. to Turkey, blaming, for example, the Gulenist movement, followers of a cleric who is mm. now in the U.S. So until you address that question of the secret state or the deep state in Turkey, you don't fully get to a point where we get that political space that Cristallo wants. Now, I'm hopeful mm. that we've taken a, there's a bit of a step there because if Erdogan had stayed in power for another five, ten years, the secret state would have been further entrenched. But it is only a small step. I agree. But I, I also want to say that I don't know that with the re-election of a majority AKP government, uh, those ele elements of constitutional change would have been changed. Oh, I, I agree. We're just talking about a constitution yeah. that where Erdogan and the AKP would have balanced this extension of powers with what may have been token moves to talk about enshrinement of rights. I absolutely agree with it. While but, also closing down alternative space. Exactly, alternative yeah. space. What I'm really interested in, and I think you raised it really well, is that you now have a party in the HDP which has fought for rights for a community within Turkey. Mm. They now become a national party. How much can they change the language of rights for Kurds into rights for all Turks, spanning all those groups that you mentioned, mm. uh, whether they're religious, secular, Yazidis, Christian, Muslims, mm. um, even you know Armenians, mm. which you know, given that we're a century after the genocide, would have been unthinkable mm. probably to discuss this until very recently. Uh, so, it, you know, change is always is not a sudden process. I, I think that elections give us a marker. But let's come back to this three, six months from now and see how much we have a transformation in the broader political landscape. Yeah, it's one of those cases where I also am torn, Scott, uh, <laughs> because I feel like on the one hand, the election result uh, is heartening in a way mm -hmm. because it appears to be an actual election result uh, as opposed to a complete stitch up. Like, I guess if you if you took an impressionistic take on the direction of political travel in Turkey over the last few years, uh, increasing uh, authoritarianism, grip on power on the mm -hmm. part of this uh, individual leader who has clearly monopolized uh, visibility within his own movement, which in turn has monopolized power in the country for a long time, you might easily have concluded he's already basically got all the mechanics in place to stitch this whole thing up, uh, roll out some kind of Potemkin election, and then get his new constitution that puts him at the center of things in perpetuity um, under the rubber stamp from there. So I guess in a way that doesn't seem like it would even be possible somewhere like Russia now, this has demonstrated that Turkey is still a functioning democracy to mm. some extent. It was possible for an election result to happen and be acknowledged and it would seem be implemented, which has pushed back against the centralization of power in his hands. On the other hand, it's sort of it's depressing to have, I don't know if this is really uh, a bad thing uh, that's new to me or just like the, the confirmation of like my instincts about how these things tend to go, that it's confirmation of the arc that political actors take, that, you know, I'm now, uh, uh, I guess, 
long enough down the road of having paid at least some attention to Turkey to remember when this guy and his movement were the ones who were the underdogs in this yeah. whole situation. The army had this tight grip on politics. Yeah. They had had numerous coups and defenestrations previously to get anyone who even looked in the direction of Islamism, which in a gentle form was a widely popular um, um, potential feature in politics, to, to shut them out of power, to uh, do whatever was necessary to exclude even majority-supported politicians who, who, who had that point of view. Um, and he was successful, ultimately, in uh, getting his party into power being responsible enough in how he used it not to scare the horses, gradually accumulate enough strength that the military ceased to have that role in politics, that Turkey uh, was no longer this place where uh, if a general woke up in the right frame of mind on a given Monday morning, he could publish a press release and the government would fall that day. That was no longer the case. And it seemed to be going well for a while. And it was like there was a period of years there when I feel like everyone was, hooray, this is a classic example of how democracy can work uh, in a Muslim-majority country without any of the concerns that normally come with that. And now, whether as a result of his uh, own megalomaniacal tendencies or just what naturally comes with being in power for a long time, or possibly because of the residue of his memory of an actually existing conspiracy in the country to do him down, he has obviously um, become comfortable with a degree of illiberalism and a degree of personalization of authority that sits uneasily with the kind of admiration I would once have, you know, wanted to throw in his direction for, uh, for having democratized the country and opened it up in many ways. So there's that kind of depressing possibility that this is just the arc people take when you put them in any kind of power. Um, and also, I, I guess, the feed, it puts me in that dilemma space I often find myself in when it comes to um, liberalism and democracy in countries like Turkey, where you feel like there is this population with broad-based support for a set of policies that are not very socially liberal, that I would probably disapprove of, uh, and then there are minorities, sometimes with the capacity to block the democratic will with a view to preserving a degree of social liberalism, and the military made great hay, and elites in, uh, in urban centres made great hay of the fact that while they were getting in the way of uh, rule by 51%, they were also preserving uh, a kind of liberal space that was, that was important to hold on to. So I'm torn by the fact that I want countries to be democratic, and therefore that means that if the majority wants something, they should get some version of that, with the fact that I would not like to live in an Islamist country or a country that had even soft Islamism as its like primary North Star for social policy. Um, and so I, I guess from the comfort of not being there, I sort of sit and hold that tension in my mind that, uh, that, that, that there are these... Uh, there are these two impulses between the imperative of majority rule and the fact that that majority rule may not always bring things that I would find awesome, which I guess is of no concern to Turks because this is about them, not me. Mm. I, I'm not as drawn. Or it, it is, the Islamist, Islamist question really hasn't been my focus for the last couple of years as an outsider. What I want to put to you as a point possibly to consider or discuss is actually the political cronyism that the protest of 2013 yeah. at Gezi Park in Istanbul, which were suppressed and which eventually petered out in part because of that suppression, in part because the opposition really couldn't get itself mobilized mm -hmm. nationally, was about plans to take down a park 
in the center of Istanbul and replace it with the shopping mall and with this neo-Ottoman monument to Erdogan's rule. And it transpired that even as those protests were being suppressed and put down, that this political cronyism had led to widespread corruption. Uh, I mean, Erdogan lost four of his ministers at the end of 2013 because they and their families were implicated in massive frauds and embezzlements. And that case is still running in the Turkish courts. So I almost get that sense that what Adam refers to, uh, that arc of people trying to hold on to rule, it wasn't just simply trying to stay into office. It was that elite which was gathering more and more economic goodies, economic benefits, and you never want to relinquish that when it holds on. And the longer the AKP stays in power, the more likely that was going to be exacerbated. And I do think the fact that you could hold a vote still says there are limits to still to what they could go. And I do wonder how much of the vote was actually a reaction to cronyism mm. to open up space. Mm. Um, my caution is, is that other political parties are not immune to also cronyism. Yeah. And whether we see the HDP offering a new model, mm. uh, whether it's working with other parties on its own, I think is going to be an interesting question. Or whether the AKP can reform itself. Because one person who I don't think we've really mentioned and who wasn't mentioned in the past week was the Prime Minister, yeah. uh, Ahmet Davutoglu, who comes from a different background, an academic, which we all like, right, uh, who had been foreign minister. Does he now step up within the AKP, AKP and challenge Erdogan? Do we see the former president, Abdullah Gul, come back and make a challenge? Early days yet. I don't yeah. think that, we, that would be a bold move, I suspect, uh, from the mood music at least that comes out of how that party and that country operates. Right? They would be putting their uh, their necks on the line. Right. It, I, I agree with that. But the interesting thing about Davutoglu is he doesn't come from the standpoint of that he's, his life has been dependent on a political career. Uh, it was a fairly bold move for him to come up with an entire new Turkish foreign policy, mm. one which, in a sense, looked away from Europe, or at least mm. balanced that with looking towards uh, the Middle East and towards Asia. Um, I, I think you're probably right. I don't think we'll get that challenge to Erdogan, but I think it comes back to the question of the political space had become too small, mm. had become too small at the top. And that beyond any notion of playing to Islamism or an Islamic system was the one, yeah. which I, I found interesting. I agree. And I also think that coming back to personality politics for a moment, Erdogan has been a very, very canny reader of public sentiment. And I think that he may have strayed from that for whatever reason, um, perhaps megalomania, perhaps a dozen different things. But I wonder if this, in aside from opening space for David Oglu or Gul, um, I wonder whether it may prompt Erdogan to, to, to start reflecting on what, what different aspects of the public are kind of pushing forward and absorb that into AKP rhetoric because he's quite good at that as well. You don't expect him to do a Tony Blair and make money on the speaking tour and uh, just walk away from it. <laughs> I do. Let, let's, let's hold that space open and see what happens. Perhaps he could be the new Middle East peace envoy. Oh, and, uh, he, would, he would be no, no less likely to be seen as an honest broker, I suspect, than the previous, uh, the previous incumbent. Anyway, I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, thanks, as always, to Kristala Yakinthu and Scott Lucas, my co-hosts. Um, our producer is Connor McKenna. I've been Adam Quinn, and we've been talking to you on Political Worldview podcast at the University of Birmingham. We'll talk to you again soon.